I'm often struck by how much change a few seconds can make in my own mind or the mind of another person. And I think of that as the law of little things. You know, it's lots of little bad things usually that get us to a bad place, and it's going to be lots of little good things that get us to a better one. That's Dr. Rick Hansen, and this is the Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to the Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happier life. I am your host, Malik Joseph. Happy Tuesday. I appreciate you connecting with me today as we have a new featured speaker on the show. And he is a neuropsychologist and author and super, super successful podcast host. And today he is going to teach us how to better use our mind to change our brain. Here's Dr. Rick Hansen. Enjoy. Well, it's an honor to be here, and I'd like to talk with you today about how you can use your mind alone, what you think about, how you feel, where you put attention, to actually change your own brain for the better. And to get into that, I'd like to start with a little personal story. Um, growing up, I was very young going through school, and I had a lot of experiences of being sort of rejected, pushed aside. I was this shy, skinny, nerdy, total dork of a kid. You know, my kids say, Dad, you're such a dork. And I go, yeah, but you're going to work for one one day. So it'd be nice. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, the truth is I had lots of those usual school experiences of being rejected, put down, you know, pushed around and so forth. Uh, tiny, tiny stuff compared to what so many people go through but they had an effect. Those little bad things added up and they left residues behind. Over time, I you know, felt empty inside. We all have a normal need to feel included, recognized, appreciated, valued, and so forth. Uh, but for me, those supplies were more like kind of a thin soup. So I ended up feeling, in a way, like I had a kind of hole in my heart. Then, in my early 20s, I stumbled on something that seemed amazing to me then and still seems amazing to me today which is that I began to realize that if a good fact happened, some little ordinary thing, you know, someone was nice to me, they hired me for something, they wanted me on their football team, that was one of the best of all, um, stuff like that, that if I just stayed with the experience, not brushing it off, not rushing on to the next thing, not denying it, but just sort of stayed with the experience that was based on that good fact, then I started gradually feeling better. In effect, bit by bit, I was filling that hole in my heart. Years later, as a neuropsychologist, I began to realize that what I was doing was actually changing my own brain. You know, you've probably noticed the same thing yourself, that if you stay with something, even for just a few seconds, better yet, 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row, it actually feels like it's kind of sinking into you. That's because in the saying from uh, brain science, neurons that fire together, wire together. In other words, what we think about actually changes neural structure. Uh, busy connections called synapses between neurons become more sensitive. Uh, new connections get built. 
Uh, busy regions, active regions in the brain uh, get more blood supplies because they need you know, more oxygen and glucose. And parts of the brain that are not active, connections that are not active, wither away in a process called neural Darwinism. You know, this capacity of the mind to change the brain for the better is a very hot area of research today. And I'll just mention a couple of studies. Uh, one, one of my favorites is on these London taxicab drivers. You know, they have to memorize the spaghetti snarl of streets there in London. And at the end of their training, their hippocampus, a part of the brain that does visual spatial memory, is measurably thicker. They've built synaptic connections there because they worked that muscle, in a sense, like going to the gym. And so it developed more function as a result. Or in a second study, comparing long-term meditators to uh, people who don't meditate at all, personal question, uh, how many of you meditate at least a minute, a month, or more, including prayer, some kind of thing? Okay, that's a low bar, no more personal questions, promise, all right? So, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, you kind of sit down, you relax, you mellow out. Well, you're changing your brain when you do that. Uh, so this study showed that meditators, um, compared to controls, people who don't meditate, had measurably thicker neural cortex in the prefrontal regions of the brain that are involved in controlling attention, being mindful, and in proportion to the buildup of structure that they had produced by working that muscle, as it were, they became more able to concentrate, to pay attention, you know, at home and work, life altogether. Uh, as you can see from these examples, you know, we can use the mind to change the brain to change the mind for the better. And that's the power, essentially, of self-directed neuroplasticity. And I think we need to use that power ourselves to change our own brains for the better, because if we don't, other forces will do it for us. You know, pressures at work, at home, other people, uh, the impact of technology and media, or Mother Nature herself. That's because we've inherited a brain that's the product of 600 million years of evolution in the nervous system. You know, Mother Nature is great at passing on genes for hunter-gatherer Stone Age life. But these uh, tendencies in the brain today are, in effect, uh, design flaws in certain regards for life in the 21st century. One of the main ones is the negativity bias, what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain. Um, for example, you know, you, in the wild, you've got to go get carrots and you've got to avoid sticks. Carrots matter, but if you don't get a carrot today, probably you have a chance at a carrot tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, wow, no more carrots forever. You know, imagine some little creature living, you know, back in Jurassic Park times that was all mellow, you know, had been listening to Sanjay Gupta, really just kind of relaxing, <laughs> checking out the light on the leaves. Oh, it's all good. Wow. <laughs> got eaten, you know? You didn't notice, right? The shadow overhead or the crackle in the brush nearby, this signaled some kind of threat, right? The ancestors who live to pass on their genes are nervous and kind of irritable. And we're their great-grandchildren, you know, sitting on the top of the food chain today, armed with nuclear weapons, you know? Um, right? Rule one in the wild, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. So it's no wonder we have this negativity bias, right? It continually is scanning for bad news, you know, because that's where threats come from. As they say in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. And then when the brain finds that bad news, it sucks it in with specialized memory systems, you know, once burned, twice shy. But positive experiences, unless they're a million dollar moment, right, they have standard issue memory systems, which means that 
unless they're very, very novel or intense, they need to be held in short-term memory buffers for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row to transfer to long-term storage. And since we rarely do that, positive experiences tend to flow through our brain like water through a sieve, while negative ones get caught every time. In effect, the brain really is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Um, think of a relationship, you know, with somebody at home or work, uh, you know, 10 things happen in the day, five are mildly positive, four are neutral, one's mildly negative. What's the one you remember when you're falling asleep, right? It's the one usually that's negative, right? It's the one that sticks to the Velcro of the brain. You know, the negativity bias was great back in the day. It was great for keeping early humans alive. You know, sure, it produces lots of stress, and stress is really bad for long-term health and therefore longevity. But when most people were dead by their 30th birthday, right, it didn't really matter. The short-term benefits of the stress that came from this negativity bias outweighed the long-term consequences. But these days, you know, people are living longer. Uh, I think about my dad, born in a ranch in North Dakota, 1918, 92, still going strong, sharp as a tack, looking good, very successful with the ladies, you know, 92s and 72. You know, we were living longer. We want to live long and prosper. These days, the long-term costs of the negativity bias are not worth the short-term uh, benefits. You can kind of see the overall pattern here. You know, Mother Nature is tilted towards survival and passing on gene copies. But in effect, in significant ways, she's tilted against quality of life, tilted against long-term health, and tilted against longevity. These tendencies, these circuits are present in our brains today. You know, caveman brains, cavewomen brains in the 21st century. Um, they're influencing us, and if we don't take charge of them, they're gonna continue to take charge of us. A great way to take charge of this, you know, caveman, cavewoman brain and you know, compensate for some of its design flaws for the 21st century, as well as a great way to build up strengths inside, build up resources inside, and if you want, fill a hole in the heart, is to take in the good. There are just three simple steps. In the first step, we look for good facts and we let them become good experiences. Right? Good facts are all around, even in a difficult life. You know, flowers are blooming, coffee tastes good, people are nice, you know, ain't dead yet, right? We're not looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. You know, we already are looking at the negative all day long. You know, there's no shortage of focus on the negative, right? We're trying to help ourselves to see the truth, to see the facts of the whole picture, the whole mosaic, including the tiles that are factually good. And then when we see those good facts, we feel them. We try to feel them rather than brushing them off or rushing on to the next thing to want or to worry about. We let them uh, fill our bodies and our minds so they can gradually sink in. So then what we do is we savor the good experience for 10 seconds or more. You know, we kind of hang out with it. We let it be there. We give ourselves over to it. We be a friend to it so it has a chance to, to come into us. You know, by extending the experience as long as possible, by making it as intense as possible and as whole-bodied as possible, we get as many neurons firing together as possible so they start wiring together as well. And then we sense and intend that it's sinking in. We prime memory systems to do it. In real life, we do this taking in the good very quickly. You know, these steps kind of mush together. But to clarify them, you know, I want to pull them apart and identify one, two, three, what's involved here. So in a moment, 
um, I'll be quiet for 15 seconds and you can do this as well. You know, right now, if you will, if you, if you like, bringing to mind something perhaps that you're grateful for, you know, some real good fact in your life, and then helping it become a good experience and knowing what that's like to let a good fact become a good experience that you're sinking into and it is sinking into you for the next 15 seconds. Okay, 15 seconds can seem really long sometimes, can't it? Um, I'm often struck by how much change a few seconds can make in my own mind or the mind of another person. And I think of that as the law of little things. You know, it's lots of little bad things usually that get us to a bad place, and it's going to be lots of little good things that get us to a better one. Big thanks to Dr. Rick Hansen for stopping by, and his take-home message for us today is to make a habit of taking in the good, and more importantly, sustaining that feeling for longer periods of time. All right, if you'd like to connect with him, you can go to his website, rickhanson.com. His Instagram is rickhansonphd. His popular podcast that I mentioned in the intro is entitled Being Well Podcast, and his latest book is entitled Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering love. And if you'd like to check out this entire talk, you can go to YouTube and type in Dr. Rick Hansen, take in the good. All right. Everything I just mentioned, along with a link to the entire talk will be in the show description below. So you can go and check that out. All right. That is a wrap for me. I appreciate you. I hope you have a, a mindful rest of your day and I will see you back here tomorrow. So until then, stay strong. Later.